All right, we're live. Gents, welcome. Great to see you all again. Thanks Thank for having us. So much. Thank you. So um, we'll get right into it. The book we're covering today is Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief, written by Jordan Peterson in 1997 or 98, and largely uh, ignored. It's kind of an obscure book. His 12 Rules for, Li for Life is far more popular, and I think he released another one maybe mm -hmm this week or it's coming up very soon if not and it's called 12 more rules uh, which are far more accessible um, sort of self-help books and not to detract from the wisdom contained therein they're you know they're, they're very interesting books in their own rights or the, at least the one that I read the first one uh, but this book um, I've heard him I heard him discuss it in podcasts uh, before he discussed how meticulous he was and how long it took him to write it. I think it took him about 20 years to develop these ideas and then to articulate them. Um, he, he, you know, he's said many times in podcasts that he, he basically took every single sentence of this book and refined it like five to 10 times to make sure it was exactly what he wanted to say and did that for every sentence. And it's a 460 page book with big pages and small print. So it's a beast, um, but I wanted to cover it because it's dealing with such fundamental uh, ideas, such fundamental concepts, such a fundamental framework for understanding the structure of reality and how human beings can best navigate and mediate that structure of reality to effectively live best their best you know best possible life as an individual and contribute to the, the construction of the best possible um culture as a collective and um i think there's a lot of parallels with bitcoin which i'm, I'm sure we'll dig into um so that's kind of the backstory we are not going to do this book justice i highly recommend that if any of this intrigues you at all you go out and you pick it up this is not meant to be an ex exhaustive exploration of the book just a few people getting together to discuss something that they found, you know, a piece of work that they found very interesting. Uh, guys, I know a lot of people listening will be familiar with you, but let's let's do a real quick intro and then we'll get it kicked off. Uh, Richard, why don't we start with you? Hey, everyone, Richard James. Um, I, uh, you might know me from some of my films. One's called Hard Money, another called Anatomy of the State. Just trying to, um, you know, I like making content, trying to uh, explain Bitcoin and Austrian economics, um, and yeah, really enjoyed a few a uh, few of these book club discussions with John before. And this, um, yeah, I think this is the big one, the biggest, probably the the most challenging one we've done. So, I'm uh, I wanted to to be here with you guys to discuss this. Bob, hey John, uh, guys, glad to be here. Um, my name is Robert Breedlove. I'm, I guess, a Bitcoin <laughs> educator and or philosopher at this point is the term that seems to be sticking. Um, I'm most recently launched the What is Money show. So trying to go really deep on these topics. Um, my, my thesis is that that is the question that kind of incepts the idea of Bitcoin for people. And I'm really excited to be here because this is, uh, I think John, you and I were exchanging notes about this book maybe a year year and a half ago even i sent you some notes i had on it the pdf and whatnot and 
this is one of the most important books ever written, in my opinion. Uh, it really explores the non-materialist side of reality, I would say, which I think is sorely lacking in, in uh, modern perception. Like we have, we're very entrenched in this scientific paradigm that everything is like uh, atoms, right? Kind of the atomic Newtonian model. And there's a whole other side of, of existence um, that's covered in this book. And I actually recommended this one with two others, which were uh, Leela by Robert Persig and Human Action by Mises. I think those three read together will just totally blow out your materialist worldview. And you'll, you'll, it opens you up to a whole nother dimension almost. It's, it's really incredible. Um, and, you know, it has a lot of ties back into Bitcoin, especially when in the later portions of the book, when Peterson gets into the alchemical um, stuff, it, it really, I think, starts to sound like he, he had written a book about Bitcoin in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, well, well summarized. <laughs> so I'm I'm Gigi. Um, most people listening might know me from Twitter. I also see myself as a kind of a Bitcoin educator, but maybe not as serious as as others. So I I like to I like the fun side of Bitcoin very much. So, and I think in Peterson's terms, it's you know the 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 choker is prerequisite for any wisdom that might might be gained. And I, I try to <laughs> find the funny things in Bitcoin uh, that are also interesting and explore them in, in my writings and in my Twitter shit posts, so to speak. And uh, yeah, I've I've been um, I've been fascinated by Peterson's body of work for quite a long while. And um, I see it in the same way that a lot of it relates back to to Bitcoin. And I also, not too long ago, uh, I think it was like December 2019, I wrote about how Bitcoin um, thrives and, and um, when it struggles against chaos and how it builds order from chaos. And this was obviously inspired by Peterson's works as well. So yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing the book and um, what we can parse out of it that relates back to Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's difficult to discern or determine the best way to attack a work like this, um, because it is so deep and, and far reaching. Um, but I wanted to open it up just the beginning. Maybe we could each go around and articulate if possible, a main takeaway from this book, or perhaps a way in which our perspective was shaped or changed by or after reading this book and, and you know taking on the insights that Peterson uh, lays out. So who wants to go first? I, I can, um, you know, give my, yeah, my personal sort of story around Peterson or to and try and be as brief as possible because you could, yeah, you could go on forever. But, but Robert mentioned this how maps of meaning is is really a um you know it, its main point is a, is a version of a non-material version of rea of reality which almost sounds nonsensical to 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 us in a way because we're so we don't realize how conditioned we are to to our current paradigm and our current mode of thinking but for me personally 
you know, I was someone who read, you know, I, I was influenced heavily by Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, like these sort of new atheists. Um, and <clears throat> I guess having never really delved so deeply into this stuff, like I just, you know, like I just took this mindset that I think is very common among, you know, Western sort of people who like to think of themselves as educated kind of people, which is, um, it's basically an atheistic view of the world, um, a, a very material view of reality, but that religion, looking at religion as, as essentially a, at best, just something old fashioned and outdated and at worst, actually something quite dangerous um and so that that was kind of and then you know if you read a book like sapiens which is is a popular book that's been going around in the last years it has a very similar um take on religion and so peterson did have a big impact on me in that he he has really challenged that that view um of why why religion is important um but not in the way that you might expect because when you certainly my first exposure to peterson and, and i think i wouldn't be alone here is he comes across as well first of all he comes across as religious in that you're, you're not quite certain what he what he is or, or he's a proponent of religion and he's also kind of folksy like or like like if you sort of read 12 rules for life if that's your, your first touch point with peterson um but then, you know, delving more deeply into, for me, it was first of his um, his series of lectures on the Bible stories, and um, and then you know his his other lecture series on maps of meaning, and um, and finally delving into the actual book itself. You know, you realize that this is this is something serious. Like it's a this is a serious work of philosophy. Uh, it's it's like a combination of of moral philosophy. But but with a very um, scientific underpinning as well. So born out of his work in clinical psychology and, and his work as a scientist. And it, it's funny, it kind of comes full circle to me um, with with Dawkins, and and I see a lot of parallels in that these guys are both are both essentially scientists. And um, you know, Dawkins has his view on this on genes and the gene as the basic unit of um, you know, of biology. And um, and I see a lot of parallels between his the, the way gene genes adapt to their environments in the same way that he talks about um, how humans uh, basically create their morals through this sort of emergent. Um, basically, he talks of morality as as an emergent property. Um, and then I suppose you know in parallel to that, you know, as I got deeper and deeper into Bitcoin, I started to become attracted to libertarian philosophies of ethics um you know rothbard and hopper basically that um you know that type of ethical philosophy um and peterson has challenged that as well because he those guys like rothbard are, are rationalists you know they're trying to con construct a system of ethics that um doesn't require anything other than logical deduction whereas peterson would be very clear in saying that that's not how it works, and um, mor morality can't be can't be grasped by reason, um, and because you can't. This is a you know an old um, idea of David Hume's that you, you can't derive an ought from an is like that. That belongs to a different system, and 
of which Peasant says religion is, is very much part of that, um, the, the way we get to that. So I've got a lot of unanswered questions, um, but all that to say is that, that he's had quite a profound influence on, um, on the way I've tried to, to view the world. Yeah, one of the things that I found um, the takeaway from the book was, I think a lot of us, particularly the type of people, Richard, that you just characterized, I think a lot of us probably did away with religion, perhaps earlier in our life. It wasn't a rational way to construct a worldview, but we maintained an appreciation for certain cultural aspects and certain wisdom contained in the religions, whether they be Eastern or Western religions. And, and I always, that, that was always my approach. And I thought like, there's really cool stuff from Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and Christianity and, you know, Islam and all this kind of stuff. I mean, and so, you know, it was kind of like a tolerance for them, despite the misguided dogmatic adherence to them, which was kind of, you know, which permitted or which fostered maybe the more negative attributes or the, the you know, that I would be critical of, of these religions. Basically, they had some good qualities and they had some good, you know, rules to go by, but, you know, th they didn't deliver enough beyond that and they weren't rooted enough. They weren't, they didn't have an, enough of a rational root for me to ever think about, you know, adhering to, to one of them exclusively. Um, but this book really, and that's, that's still the case, but what this book has done is it, it gave me a far deeper appreciation for how, how they were cultivated, why they emerged, and how as human beings as, as, and as human culture, we tried, to, we tried to communicate and contextualize this, you know, uh, our legacy of knowledge about the deepest aspects of who we are and what reality is into these incredibly meaningful systems of understanding, mythic stories, moral you know, moral frameworks, et cetera. And from that perspective, I kind of, because like you, Richard, I always would listen to Peterson speak. And when the religion question came up, like he either didn't want to answer it or he was kind of uncomfortable, he foiled around with it. And, you know, I didn't know how to, to interpret that either, but I, I, I can appreciate his stance on that a lot more now because I guess we can broadly say religion is is not what most people in the modern world think that it is. And I, I like one of the quotes from the book uh, that he says, and he says, we have made the great mistake of assuming that the quote unquote world of spirit described by those who preceded us was the modern quote world of matter primitively conceptualized. And I think this is what a lot of people um, believe is that these stories were you know, used to describe the natural world, used to create cohesive social structure, used to, you know, and co-opted and abused and all the, all the criticisms of them. But as it turns out, they're really trying to articulate something fundamental. And after you read the book, almost unavoidable about uh, what it means to be a human being, you know, on earth in this reality that we exist in. Uh, and he, he makes such a strong case from an evolutionary and a biological and a social perspective, uh, or he makes, a, uh, he uses those three perspectives and, and probably more philosophical to make the case, you know, to make that case. And he does it in such a way that it's really, really difficult to avoid. And it's caused me to think a lot more 
about these stories, one, but also about what it means to be able to interpret them in that way. Because another part of, of the book is, you know, him suggesting that the, because this is such a fundamental way that we interact and, and perceive reality, that oftentimes these stories, these myths, these belief structures, quote unquote, will be erected without the semantic or the, you know, the explicit understanding that they're describing the nature of reality, because they're so fundamental to how we act and how we observe action, human action, that we just end up kind of telling the same, you know, ultimately truthful story in many different ways. And I'm curious that, you know, at this point in our history, where we've developed all the requisite historical knowledge and developing a scientific, you know, set of knowledge to, you know, both psychological and biological to look at and probe these ideas further, what does it mean for the ideas themselves, if anything, that we can look at them through a perhaps even, we can consciously investigate the structure of these stories and through them, the structure of reality. What does it mean for us to do that? And, you know, I, I'd love to get some of you guys input on, on that, but uh, I'll pass it over to somebody else now. Uh, I, I can jump in. So I, I think what you're saying there is very interesting and, um, and calls to mind that actually the other book, Leela by Persig, where he describes, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, but he basically makes the point or is making the argument that value is fundamental to reality. It's like that value actually is the most fundamental substance in existence. And um, there's a, you can actually determine morality from that and that there's a ratcheting effect between what he calls static and dynamic value. So in general, the, the higher you ascend these layers, which uh, there's four of them, I think it goes from biological I guess from non from material to biological to social, uh, maybe to ID after that. But basically, uh, whatever action creates more freedom at a higher layer, even if it's sacrificing the freedom of a lower layer, that that is a moral action, quote unquote. And I just think there's, and that's its own rabbit hole. But there's this ratcheting effect between scientific reality, where we've gained this incredible power. Uh, with the reductionist materialist mindset, you know, we have this technology that is, you know, almost indistinguishable from magic now, but it, it, that has ratcheted itself from uh, this prior non-materialist, non-scientific, non-empirical view of reality. And they, they interact sort of, sort of back and forth. Um, it, that may sound a little bit, um, uh, ephemeral, but it, towards the end of the book, when he gets into alchemy, he specifically talks about how alchemy, uh, as, as Carl Jung called it, was the dream from which science was born. So people had no idea about scientific reality. It didn't, it wasn't even a concept, right? And it, uh, atoms and, and time, everything was different uh, through, this, through this lens of, of existence. And they actually had to figure out the experimental process, even develop the scientific method that led to, uh, you know, science as we know it today. So there was this 
mythological underpinning, I guess, to even birth science. And now it seems like uh, a, a book like the Tao of Physics, which I've referenced before, that starts to compare the parallels between ancient Eastern mysticism and modern physics. So it's as if like science became so advanced, it got so uh, deep that it started to see its own limitations. And in those limitations, like the, the paradoxes that it identified, it actually pointed back to wisdom from ancient Taoism. So there's just some interacting effect here. I call it like subjective objective. I don't know if that's exactly correct, but um, so that was just based on what you just said there. Um, and I'll, I'll try to lay out a little bit my path into Peterson and then talk about some takeaways of the book. So I grew up in Tennessee. I was raised Christian. I was in church most Sundays, many times Wednesdays as well. Um, by the time I became, uh, I guess around the age of 11 or 12, I started reading a lot of astrophysics. So it was a lot of like Stephen Hawking, Brian Greene. By the age of probably 14, 15, I was fully immersed in that worldview and thought religion was just like a nice fairy tale to keep people uh, organized. Um, so pretty, became pretty atheistic in my, my mindset. I wasn't like parading around saying there's no God or anything, but just as most of you guys uh, think, I just became very immersed in science. And then my early 20s, I got into yoga which led me into meditation, which took me back into spirituality. I mean, just having that direct experience with a meditative state um, and also some psychedelics at the time just kind of opened your mind to the other side of reality of that. And that book, actually, I just mentioned, The Tao of Physics, that started to bridge the gap for me as well. I had this very scientific worldview, but it connected back to this ancient wisdom that is Taoism. So I started to see a lot of importance in the, uh, the ancient wisdom of the world. And then it was actually getting into Bitcoin that took me to Peterson. I was introduced to Peterson. Uh, a number of people have, have mentioned his work. And, um, I brushed him off for a while, but then when I started to watch his, his lectures, that's when I really started to fall down the Peterson rabbit hole. I mean, if you've ever seen this guy lecture, he's, he's probably one of the best or orators ever. I mean, he's definitely up there. He, he can just go. Um, and through Peterson, you know, I mentioned that, that the book, The Tao of Physics, bridged science and mythology, I guess you could say, science and Taoism. Peterson took it back to Christianity for me. So he, he does a great way of articulating what I would say is kind of the scientific case for the Judeo-Christian myth. I mean, he's not justifying it with science, but he's drawing the parallels. Uh, but I think he, the term he uses is consilience, right? If you're analyzing a particular phenomenon from multiple different angles and they're all pointing the same direction, that makes it more true. So he'll come at, you know, stories of the Bible through a Jungian psychology lens. He'll come at it through a physics lens uh, and other, other viewpoints. And they're all sort of pointing to the same type of phenomenon in the world, which really, um, I think in psychology calls it multivariate analysis, right? So if you're looking at something at different levels and it's all looks the same, it's, it's kind of conciliatory. And the book, Maps of Meaning, which I've only read Maps of Meaning, I've read very few parts of 12 Rules from Life, 12 Rules for Life. What I understand about 
Quovos for Life is that it's much more the mainstream version. So it's the same ideas, I think, contained in Maps of Meaning, but repackaged for a broader audience. And clearly that book has been his, his bestseller. Maps of Meaning is still obscure, but Maps of Meaning is where all the magic's at. I mean, he put it all in there. It's, it's just incredible. A um, couple of takeaways for me. One was that we often talk about the hero myth, which is something that Joseph Campbell popularized. It really is the development of individuality, frankly. It's we're all born unique. Um, and there's something really important about embracing your uniqueness and, and uh, what is it kind of like discovering, what is the old saying? Like the, the purpose of life is to find your gift and the meaning of life is to share it with the world kind of thing. I think the world, the, the more we optimize for that kind of world where we encourage the development of individuality versus uniformity, which I would argue a, a nationalism, nation state model sort of pushes us the other way, uh, the better the world is. So there's a connection there, a deep connection between the hero mythology and the development of individuality. So it's a, it has a very practical use case in the world. Um, also, he, the other, takeaway from the book for me is that morality in scientific circles is very popular to say that morality is just an emergent phenomenon and it is to some extent like your the moralities of the group shift uh based on their their conditions um based on their own like as civilization progresses our morality becomes more sophisticated and nuanced and uh you know we develop things like like private property rights and whatnot but but we observe, you know, it's morality exists too in the animal kingdom, even where these certain hierarchies of animals have a protocol for interacting that may be nonviolent. You know, he goes into the example of the wolf a lot, where if there's a uh, dispute between the uh, the alpha males, the one that loses doesn't get killed. He just sort of gives up his neck and and kind of bends the knee to the winner. And the purpose of that is so that they can preserve the group integrity, because if they need to go bring down a buffalo next week, they need all the wolves. They can't just go around killing the alpha male every time there's a, a dispute. So there's morality does emerge biologically, but there's something really, there's some, there are some absolutes or fundamentals rooted in that as well. Um, so it's almost like, like value is funda as fundamental as atomic reality. You know, there, there's some equal weighting there, but it's kind of hard to describe maybe. And um, it's the, the other thing kind of to the point you made, John, was that science, we tend to think of it, the scientific viewpoint, we think of ourselves as superior to those old traditions or old religions or old mythologies. We think, oh, that's what they used to think before we figured out, you know, Newtonian model or Einsteinian model of the universe. And now we, we've, we've kind of outgrown this old way of seeing the world, but it's not actually true. Like science has given us a, again, a very powerful way of handling the universe and, and shaping ideas. But mythology does something interesting in that it, it is the kind of the ultimate narrative structure. It's, it tells these stories in such a dense, uh, yet accessible way. You know, one of the examples he goes into a lot in the Bible is the story of Cain and Abel. It's like a one paragraph story, but it, when he analyzes it, it contains so much meaning. 
Um, and these stories, if you think about, you know, like Dawkins' memetics, the potency of a narrative is how transferable it is. You know, can it be memorized, spoken, retold? So there's value in narrative. It's like narrative is the only way we can contain meaning as humans. And I think Peterson's point is that that narrative function, it's somehow reflected even in our, our psychobiological architecture. Like we have narrative built into us. It's the only way we can deal with space and time essentially. And myth is kind of the highest expression of that narrative structure. It's something, it is, it's archetypal in a way. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, there are these very deep scientific connections between our perceptions and mythology that, you know, the, the way we use the word mythology today is to describe something that's fake or false. If someone's like, oh, that's a myth. You know, we, we, we disparage the term even, but it's actually quite the opposite. It's something very fundamental uh, to our perceptions. So that's me flailing about trying to describe some of the importance of this text. It's, it's so hard. I, I mean, I know we're all flailing about it. it. It's so difficult. I think one point that should be uh, just to bookend this discussion, that one of the fundamental themes of this book is that Real, you know, reality obviously has some structure. We've been uh, focused in the modern era of looking at the material structure of reality and trying our best to understand that and manipulate that to whatever ends. But there are obviously other dimensions to reality and meaning is one of them. And perhaps that might even uh, be the primary um, structure of reality, although that, that's a very difficult case to make uh, in just a few words. But effectively, it's structured, it's bookended by two different um, forces, order and chaos. So complete entropy and disorder and, and, and pure potential, pure destructive capacity and pure redemptive capacity for the knowledge that it contains. And that's what all of all human knowledge is, is, is going into the unknown, whether that be psychologically, whether that be experimentally, whatever and delving in there to try to find something of value that we can bring back, integrate and contribute to the productive, you know, a productive use, uh, you know, for ourselves or for the collective. And so the other end of that spectrum is order. And so order is protective, order is the known, order is, you know, safety, but and, and obviously, you know, it's obvious why we require that because we want to shield ourselves from the chaotic unknown, from, from danger. But of course, order can be overbearing, order can be tyrannical, order can be restrictive. And so the thesis of the book, the main theme is that the thing that mediates the two of those things is the redemptive hero. The in, and, and that's why <clears throat> this book really is you know, an exploration uh, and a, a sanctification and a reiteration of the sanctity of the individual because it alone has that redemptive quality to say, you know, to have both the courage to go out into the unknown from the safety of order because they know that the order can and needs to be updated periodically, if not continually, in, you know, depending on which scale we're looking at. <clears throat> 
to go into to go into the the unknown and to come back with something useful and therefore to mediate between those two primordial forces of order and chaos <clears throat> and it's the the historical process of doing that to iterating that process by each individual and feeding into each society and culture and collective that's allowed us to come to understand what factors psychological factors what modes of behavior that we as individuals take are most beneficial to succeeding at that process at mediating between order and chaos for the benefit of the individual and the society that's what these stories are articulating the the the, the total compendium of of human history of that being the unavoidable process of existence, observing that process, and then trying to codify it into story so that we might engage it more consciously and as a result, more, more effectively and, and more successfully and not fall prey to the pitfalls that are inherent in that story, either falling into chaos to destruction or falling into overbearing order and into you know, uh, stagnation and nullification and, and tyranny. And so I, I just wanted to say that because I think thus far, uh, if people haven't read the book, I think that underlying theme is important to contextualize what we'll be discussing. And it's, you know, I think that framing will allow people to understand that when we talk about a lot of the different elements that reemerge in these myths, what they're doing is they're highlighting previously beneficial modes of being that led to the most possible, the, the, the most beneficial outcomes possible. And so they're not prescriptive in a specific way. They're saying that, you know, the, this mode of being is, is how the individual specifically should go about the continual upgrading um, of their situation by properly mediating the unknown with the known chaos order um, potential and uh, and stagnation, let's say. I hope that made some sense. Yeah, that, that made a lot of sense. And I, I'd like to loop back to something that Robert said um, just a minute ago um, when he was talking about the book by Piercing uh, Lila, which talks about dynamic and static quality. I can highly recommend uh, um, this book as well and it's basically it basically says the same thing in my opinion that peterson talks about a lot uh it just frames it differently in as robert said dynamic and static quality instead of order and chaos and i think it's once you dig into this material deeply enough it kind of becomes obvious that um as you've also said john if something is purely static like we, we see this all the time large corporations are a good example like the world moves on and you would have to adapt but you're too static of a construct to manage this adaptation and so you you fall apart um you you can't adapt quickly enough and um so so this is uh i think also what piercing discusses just on on multiple levels and and the reason why i bring it up again is that um piercing pointed out multiple times that the idea is paramount. Like if a, if a society, for example, tries to suppress an idea, it is the society that should crumble and not the idea. So if, if the idea is truthful. And, and Peterson and also the religions, I think, 
they are trying to say the same thing. And Peterson mentions many times that uh, he, he talks about the, the logos a lot and how the logos is paramount in Christianity. And I, I, I think um, it's, it's very interesting that it all, re like it, it, it all revolves around these similar, very basic, but very essential concepts. And not only in multiple religions and multiple philosophies, but also in Bitcoin directly. Like uh, Bitcoin is often talking about how Bitcoin is speech, and for me, Bitcoin as well is like an embodiment of the logos. You you would you need to outlaw speech or make speech impossible for Bitcoin to, uh, to shut down Bitcoin. And I I think there are so many interesting parallels that um, pop up all the time. And what you mentioned as well there the correct path of an individual is right on the edge between order and chaos. And we see this also in the Taoist philosophy and the, the yin-yang symbol, for example, is a, a visual representation of that, that that Peterson mentions as well. Like the, the correct path a person should take is exactly on the line between order and chaos. And you have one foot uh, on the side of order and one foot on the side of chaos. And you need to be open for new things, but you also need to be integrated into your family, into your society, and uh, kind of have a, uh, at least 50% of your being should be structured in a way that it is in reality and static enough to not fall apart. And it also symbolizes very nicely that out of pure order, all, like you, you have the black dot in the, in the white spot, uh, in the, on the white side. So if you have too much too much structure, chaos will emerge. And if you have too much chaos, out of that order has to emerge. And I think we see this over and over and over again. And, and what I find so fascinating um, in like relating this back to Bitcoin, that, that basically in Bitcoin, what, what nodes are doing all the time is they're harvesting chaos by proof of work, like by mining, trying to find random numbers to produce the, the most order that we as humanity have in in, the, in in this universe like if you you can't be sure about anything pretty much but what is embedded in the Bitcoin ledger uh, a few blocks down um, that's I think the closest to absolute truth that we have and I, I just uh, once once I understood that and I, I like I read Peterson before I, I really went insanely deep into Bitcoin so um, for me it was just, mind-blowing to have all these kind of revelations that that bitcoin maps so nicely onto onto um, the maps that peterson lays out and yeah I'd, I'd be interested to what you guys have to say to that yeah just <clears throat> excuse me one final point on um, <clears throat> underlying theme of the book and and then i like i'd love to explore the bitcoin element but um you, we we talk a lot about uh, values and principles, you know, in all domains of life, but particularly it comes up um, in the religious area and also in, in religious criticisms. And I just wanted to make the point clear that it it's the iterative process of being that redemptive hero that is the line on the Taoist symbol between order and chaos that continuously delves into chaos and comes back with order. And it's the process of doing that and observing it from which values emerge as being representative of the most effective modes of being at the synthesis on, of the individual level and the collective social level. And I think that's, 
interesting. I, I never looked at it that way. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, when we have that conversation about where do values come from and, and why do we why do we have them even if we, we don't adhere to some explicit set of values? And, you know, again, in the, in the book, Peterson makes both the biological and the, the source of these, these stories, myths, philosophies case, that it's that very process of the individual continuing to mediate that line. And as a result of the pressure induced by being on that line, almost being forced to discover which modes of being, which, psych which psychological constructs, which types of behavior are most optimal at mediating that line and bringing back and integrating into personal and interpersonal order. And that is you know, where our, our values come from, even if you don't tacitly or explicitly, if, even if you can't explicitly identify your values, you, you embody that process over the course of hundreds of thousands, if not more years. I think it's exactly something I was going <clears> to, <throat> you took my words out of my mouth, actually, talking about that yin and yang symbol, it actually points toward uh, the limitations of <clears throat> the reductionist viewpoint, because we tend to think when we see the yin and yang symbol, we think, oh, it's yin and yang. But that's not actually what's important in that symbol. The meaning of that symbol is the sliver S in between. It is the dynamic relationship between the two. And it's that that is what I think the point is that that uh, dynamic edge between the two is reality. That's the deepest reality. It's when we view or observe that reality that that yin and yang compose themselves. So um, it's like the the things almost don't exist. The, the dynamic value or dynamic quality is the fundamental reality, but then the act of engaging with it, observing it, describing it, categorizing it with the logos, that's what actually makes things come into reality. And the Bible goes into that deeply too, that there's something, something becomes different once you name it, right? It's one thing to have, a, you know, a cow, but once you've named it a cow and it's other people can relate to the idea of a cow and you can communicate about it, you've, you've actually ascended into another domain. The, the domain of the ideas. Um, and to that point, the, the, the entrepreneur, the individual, is that mediating force between the two. And in a, a market sense, you could say the individual's decisions or the entrepreneur's decisions, they are the mediating force between order and chaos. So you're going into the unknown. You're experimenting basically trying to solve problems in a different unique way and whatever experiment or pattern that you've generated works you then take that order back into the known communicate it with speech so it can be incorporated into the structure of civilization and that's how we advance so you can think of civilization the entrepreneur first of all is the elemental particle of civilization we need them constantly out on the edges discovering and learning feeding back information to the core. And the civilization itself is like a bubble of information growing in a sea of entropy, right? The whole universe is pervaded by entropy, uh, but civilization itself, which by the way, information, that's how you define it. It's the resolution of entropy, right? We have something that's uncertain and we convert it into something that's known. We fit it to a pattern. Uh, that conversion is information, basically. That's why information tends to be like surprise. 
So civilization is this bubble of society's treasury of knowledge, if you, if you will, growing inside of the unknown, which is the entire universe. And the, the, the indispensable aspect of that growth process is speech. It is the logos, right? We need to be able to incorporate the learnings at the edges into the core of civilization to grow. So we, so we can learn from the mistakes of everyone forever, right? One guy discovers penicillin or whatever the breakthrough is, and then he can teach others how to do it. We've now solved that problem forever. We've increased everyone's life expectancy worldwide forever, right? As a result of one interaction uh, with entropy. And in that, to the deeper point there is like, that is, back to Peterson's early point is that, you know, God is the logos. The word is God, the word was with God, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, this is the divine quality that's within us all. And it's fundamentally related to this act of free exchange, whether you know, call that free speech or free trade. Um, and that, that to me is what ties it into a book like Human Action. That really gets into the, the praxeological first principles of trade and, and why it's important to have um, you know, minimized barriers to trade to increase wealth, to increase human flourishing. Um, so there's some connection there that I've been really thinking about lately between the market and this concept of God, the idea of God. Um, and I think it's all you know, rooted in this, uh, this dynamic relationship between order and chaos, which is a relative feature, right? You're, one man's order is another man's chaos, but if we have free speech, then everyone that figures out any problem can incorporate that into the order for everyone. So, um, yeah, it, with free speech, we have this ability to constantly update and refresh the hierarchy for the benefit of everyone. Yeah, to, to quickly tag onto that, I think one of the main things that I got out of the book as well uh, relates to what you just said, um, that what is, um, you, you know, like one, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And that it's, it's the fact that our values drive our perceptions and uh, that this is so deeply rooted in our biology and just in the way we work and in, in the way um, any goal-oriented animal works and behaves that you don't even see the things that you don't value. You can't even make sense of it. And I think all of that is related and it's also related to what you mentioned with markets and in, in a sense, the pricing mechanism in markets is, is just another form of speech. It's, it's just another form of communication, communicating effectively to your peers in a network. And that's what we humans are doing as well. And that's why speech is so paramount because it is the most efficient communication tool that we have. Uh, I mean, you, you could also you know meet again and dance it out and hug it out. And there is some communication there, but speech is way, way more efficient. And we're definitely not the only species that does something like that. I, uh, our our mutual friend Brandon Quidham he um, knows the fungi kingdom very well and there are similar things going on in terms of exchanging information chemically and I think that's what it's all about if you have a if you have a world that is changing you need to be able to adapt and you, and if you are a networked organism so to speak the only way to 
adapt quickly enough is to exchange information. And I think this is what the religions figured out as well, that speech is paramount for society to adapt. And once you figured something out that like um, works <laughs> and to, to loop back to the wolf example, for example, uh, like what the wolves are doing, they're playing a stable game. Like if every time a wolf loses a hierarchy fight, like who, who is the alpha male? And then he, he eats the other one in the group. That's not a stable game to play. And I think what, um, like what, what opened my eyes to the usefulness of myth and religion and uh, also, um, yeah, rituals and, and, and just, yeah, all those things that you might dismiss when you go <laughs> down the scientific um, uh, path and think all of that is nonsense, is that those are very stable games and, and stable, like games are stable for for a reason like they're 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 if something has worked for thousands of years there there is some deep truth embedded in it by default because anything that isn't truthful would work for such a long period of time and that was also very eye-opening for me to to um, understand at first and so i think we as a society we try to figure out what what are what are the games that we can play that are stable and i think I think also economists try to figure out similar things and definitely uh, like animals in general, biology in general tries to find out what kind of games can you play that are stable over long periods of, of time, uh, but are still alive. You know, like you could argue that a, a rock is very stable over long periods of, <laughs> of time, but there is no adaptive process in it. Um, so yeah, I think communication is paramount for, for those kind of things. And this is why Peterson also focuses on the logos so much. There's definitely a, a parallel here that, that everyone's drawing on between human action or, or the, the, the sort of edifice of Austrian economics um, and, and Peterson's work. And, um, you know, Mises in human action starts, starts with this axiom of, um, of goal-directed behavior. Um, and you know, humans, that's sort of the fundamental axiom, the humans act to, um, you know, to, to achieve a goal or, or they use means, um, you know, in service of, of, of ends. And so, and Peterson would, would take that and say that, you know, action, to act in, in, in the most, you know, banal sense, in, in order to act at all, you have to already have a structure of values in place. Like, it presupposes um, having a system of values. And so when Peterson talks about morality, he doesn't really separate, you know, you've got your everyday behavior and then you've got moral behavior of, of questions of good and bad on some higher plane. Like it's all about, um, you know, value or, or morals is just, um, is simply just, a, you know, the, the goals to which we, we aim our behavior. And, um, and he sort of just, you know, that if we bring back into, um, you know, this idea of chaos and order, like he constructs um, his system of morality in, in reference to chaos and order. So he'll say that basically he's saying that good things that are good are, you know, the, the that process of voluntarily stepping up and exploring the unknown. Um, and then 
so so it's not it's not defined as something static and or it's not it's not it can't really be grasped other than as a as a process and um his definition of evil or, or bad what's bad would sort of be the 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 opposite of that the anti-hero which is to to shy away from the unknown or or to basically to reject that hero's journey that's evil and so he you know he then categorizes that is expressing itself in either two ways one is is sort of fascism or the the you know you have these rules and and you can't accept the slightest bit of entropy or chaos like everything has to be ordered or the the other side of the coin is kind of he calls it decadence or it's like nihilism or the idea that um you just reject you sort of reject everything and, and blame blame everything on on society so it's interesting that he um you know that he constructs, um, you know, his morality based on based on something similar to this, and so you know it all comes back to the it does come back to the individual saying that you know <clears throat> the the decision for good and bad is always inside the um, the individual, and you know he's obviously highly influenced by Jung, and Jung has this quote that, that talks about you know the you know the good and evil isn't with states or isn't with um, it's there's this line in every human heart is is Jung's quote upon which good and evil um, lies, and so it's really, um, you know, it, it's the the individual pursuit of um, you know of the logos that that is what Peterson would define as good, and um, you know those are all the same tenets that underpin our vision of how how markets need to work and how civilizations need to work and how human society needs to work. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, and he also discusses in the book and then in his further uh, talks um, online and stuff about it, it, it's not just a story here of like, you'll do best if you and, and it should be noted that this dynamic operates on all scales. So like you guys have just been articulating, the market is a type of God, because it says it, it's the thing that dictates that if you approach it or engage with it in a particular manner, you, you will succeed or fail predicated on how you engage it. Let's say that. And that is true for the market. And that is true for reality. And that can be true on every scale. It's like, a, you know, a dynamic nestled within a dynamic, nestled within a dynamic, you know, infinitely large and infinitely small. I mean, this is this is kind of how we, the, the relationship that mediates, broadly speaking, success in all things. And so in that sense, the market is a type of God because it's the structure that determines success or failure. And of course, as a result of doing that, it also elucidates or it, it shines a light on the, the best behaviors to engage it with. And so those can be instructive in terms of both how to be successful in a market, but how to be successful more broadly as an individual and a society. But the, the point I wanted to make was, it's not just about succeeding most optimally. Like what you were saying, Richard, is there's very dire consequences to ignoring the proper mode of being. Uh, it's not so it's, it's not like something, it, you can't ignore it. It's not like you can say, I don't want to play this game. You're going, you, you, if you're alive, you're playing the game. 
And if you decide to ignore it, or if you, you, know, you decide to shun it, or if you decide to try to kick it under the rug, or if you decide not to accept it for what it is, you don't get to just sit on the sidelines. It destroys you. It turns you in to the monster that nullifies, you know, at best and at worst destroys the very structure of the safety that has been built upon for you generation after generation. So, and, and, and I think that's, I mean, that's really something that we don't get, a, <laughs> that doesn't get a lot of airtime today in, in society. Um, when we analyze how we're acting as individuals and as a culture and to what degree we're doing that. And you know, the, the, the example I often bring up in these types of discussions, like when I'm having them socially, is you know, if you were a German in the mid 1930s, if you were you know, someone in the Soviet Union um, you know, in the 40s, 50s, like pe people, first of all, it wasn't obvious what was on the horizon. And certain, most people certainly don't think of themselves as evil people, right? So the very insidious way that rejecting, you know, the quote unquote hero's journey, rejecting the proper mode of being, rejecting the responsibility that you have just by virtue of being alive to go into chaos and try to use it to reintegrate and upgrade order, both on a personal and social level, the rejection of that has very insidious and very tragic and destructive outcomes in, in the form of turning you into, you know, the world destroyer versus the redemptive hero. And I know that language is, is probably off-putting to some, and I'm obviously using it because it's fresh in my mind from reading the book, but my, the, the simple point is just that you don't get to choose if you're part of this game. You are. And if you, if you don't choose wisely, if you don't choose intentionally, if you don't choose consciously, and if you don't, don't choose courageously, you will become a version of, on some scale, um, you know, the world destroyer or the devil or however that character has been characterized throughout, throughout the ages. And, you know, I think that's a bit of a call to attention, a call to responsibility and a call to action in many ways. It reminds me of that quote where like, if you don't choose to live out your own story, you're just gonna become part of someone else's story. So if you're not pursuing that hero's journey of development of individuality, that you'll actually become a pawn in someone else's, uh, you know, story, basically. And I, I want to dive into that a little more. I, I'm so glad we're talking about this comparison between the market and God, because I think this might be the bridge to secularize the idea of God and go and win an argument with someone like uh like Newt Swan Holm, you'd be like, look, man, it's, it's a mythological representation of something that's very real. Um, so a couple ways to think about this is God and the market, they both like demand sacrifice, right? That's, that's a recurrent theme in the Bible. The, the premise of a free market is that we are delaying gratification delaying consumption today towards the achievement of higher uh, aims tomorrow. So by restricting um, our enjoyment of something today and setting our aims on something higher, we can actually create more enjoyment or more want satisfaction in the long run. So we can restrict consumption, save and invest 
and create more aggregate wealth as a result. We can increase our productivity. So this idea of sacrifice, it's very, very well um, spelled out in the Bible. And it shows how it was discovered too. There was a long, arduous journey for people to figure out this concept of sacrifice. And, and you know, even looking at the Old Testament, it goes into things like child sacrifice and all these other things. I think, I think this is spelling out uh, a long historic process of actually trying to come to this idea. And it's something that's true, right? When we were just running around as cavemen 100,000 years ago, I don't think anyone had any idea about delayed gratification or capital accumulation, right? As a means for elevating themselves from, from privation. So this is a hard fought, hard won idea, this idea of sacrifice and its core to both the concept of God and, and the concept of the market. And Peterson lays this out beautifully. Right? He refers to this old Jewish, um, I guess it's a, like a, a passage or something from the, the Kabbalah, perhaps, where it says, uh, God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. So he's, he can do all things. He's all powerful. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And I think this is, again, just in the interest of secularizing this, like if we look at the concept of the market, the market is, in the sphere of human action at least, it is all powerful, right? It is the thing that generates all things, all luxuries, all innovations. Um, it's the thing we sacrifice towards, like we go and work in the market, we provide our skills, uh, sell goods, whatever it might be, and we, we render value from it. Uh, the market is all knowing, so it's omniscient as well in the sphere of human action. It is the collective intelligence of all humanity, right? We have access to every idea that's ever been formulated and, and maintained across time is embodied in the market and all present idea generators. So the collective intelligence of everyone worldwide is expressed in the price signal. And then finally, the market is omnipresent because the market is everywhere. You can't not interact with the market. The market is just being this forum of exchange between people. That's all we do. We're constantly engaged in exchange with one another, financial or otherwise. So in this, in this passage that Peterson references, he goes, so what, where is the, the room for being or existence in this? If you've got a God that's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, what does that God lack? And the answer to that question, what, what is an unlimited God or and what we're saying here is what does the market lack? Is it lacks limitation. The one thing that God doesn't have. And I think this is this points to the basis of being, because we are limited, right? That's what this all this is about, is that suffering is unavoidable because of we because we have limitation of existence, suffering is inevitable. But we also have the choice. We have the choice to either face that heroically and voluntarily and embrace it and try to learn from it and live at the edge between order and chaos and uh, live on behalf of others, by the way, which I think could be a secular interpretation for the afterlife. It's like if you make good moral decisions today and you, you can learn and render things from the unknown that benefit uh, civilization everywhere going forward, could that, could that not be understood as a secular interpretation of, 
of the afterlife. It's like that, that gladiator line comes to mind, which is what we do in life echoes in eternity. So if you're making good, intelligent, or good moral decisions, that it's, it's, it's beyond us, right? The end, we're just the individual, each entrepreneur, each market actor is just a cell in this super organism um, that you know, we call socioeconomics or the market or whatever. So, and it's also, it points towards the, the utility of pain, right? Which, which Peterson goes deep into saying that, that pain is the inarguable basis of being. You can intellectualize and make pretty much anything relative in the world, but you can't argue with pain and suffering. No one can, no moral relativist can discount the experience of pain. Like it, is, it is very real. It's something extraordinarily real and pain arises from limitation. So um, yeah, I don't know. That's something I'm thinking a lot about lately. And I've, there's an interesting thing to do, by the way, if you decide to read human action, every time you come across the word market in human action, just reread the sentence with God instead of market. And you're going to, you're going to read some wild sentences. Let me tell you. Rob, let me ask you this, because um, as you were saying that, and we're talking about this theme of if kind of God is in everything, if we want to put it that way, you know, that dynamic exists on every scale. And if in this interpretation, we're saying the market is God, the individual is the hero, whether that's an entrepreneur or, or whatever, what then, how then would you characterize money? What is money in that relationship and that dynamic yeah so i, I would I, I, sorry to interrupt I, I would love to to jump in very soon but please rob go ahead um if you I'll have a good answer to that. On that so the other thing i'm thinking about is that the market is the form of free exchange right so although we tend to think of it about just exchange between people i think everything in the universe is in constant state of exchange and in fact we could say exchange is the original event right exchange the big bang was an exchange everything came from nothing so exchange transcends space and time space and time was birthed from exchange if you will um so we, you could say that when we say the market people tend to think like the economy or whatever i think it's bigger than that it's actually exchange itself this this fundamental primordial event or process um and we could say in that lens that money is you know by definition the most marketable good so it's the most exchangeable good so it is it's it's on par with with the logos of free speech as a mechanism for coordinating um civilization i guess cheesy if i can just jump in on that last point and then i promise i'll, I'll hand it over to you but you know, framing it up that way. And I, look, I understand that we're speaking very esoterically about these comment, these, these, uh, these concepts, but if market is God and uh, the individual is, is the hero, um, as you're saying all that, it kind of, to my mind, money then becomes the word of God. It's the thing that meet that mediates and that identifies successful exploratory behavior into the realm of the unknown. And so how, if you, if you didn't have money, then how would you know how God is judging your behavior in that domain? And so 
in this metaphorical language that we're using. And of course, you know, as we've been discussing thus far, it seems like it kind of fits that money would be the way that God speaks to you and lets you know whether you're on the right path or what, you know, how much you're quote unquote succeeding. Beautifully said. I think uh, a nice way to think about exactly what you said is also um, if you in a market, if you could know everything in advance and there was no communication lag whatsoever, like there was no uncertain future whatsoever, you wouldn't need money. You could do all economic calculations without ever needing money. And so, yeah, I think money arises and similar those philosophies of life slash religions arise because what these things try to solve is actually an impossible problem. And it's an information theoretical problem in markets. And I think it's also an, an inform information theoretical problem in how to deal with life, how to, how to act, um, yeah, according to God, so to speak. And the, it all loops back to suffering and limitation. And also in information theory, like in, in, in any network, you, you're limited by light speed, for example. You, 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 you cannot, like you have some limitations that you cannot break. You can never have perfect, perfect information of a system. And so this will always arise and you will always need to have um, a coordination mechanism, just like money to, to make sense of all the things that are happening in this network, because you cannot, you cannot have a perfect snapshot of everything that is going on. It's, it's just physically and mathematically impossible. It's also, I, I'm saying also mathematically impossible because just a combinatorial explosion is so large that you, you would need to store this information somewhere. And if you would try to do that for the world economy, for example, you would just, the, the hard disk that you would need to have to store the information on, it would collapse into a black hole because you just need so many atoms to, to store the bits of information on. And so all of this, I think, relates um, that basically markets try to solve an impossible problem and also religions try to solve an impossible problem. And um, I really like the, the bridge that you um, just built up with uh, talking about delayed gratification and how every sacrifice is at a delayed gratification. And very similarly, markets only function if you save up capital and delay your gratification. And I think what uh, one of the main messages of uh, 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 that, that Peter, Peterson tries to convey in the book is that you will suffer anyway. So you might as well find something that is that it's worth suffering for. So you, you need something meaningful that you will do with the time. And I, I think the same is true also. Like you can you can say the same thing in different ways and uh, i like to think about it as well like time will pass anyway so you might as well do something worth doing and whatever you think according to your values and hierarchies is worth doing and uh, again as we as we discussed before the like the devil is doing exactly the opposite you know that you're wasting time and you're doing it anyway and the time will pass and i think in, in markets you can say similar things you know like you you will have to spend money anyway <laughs> so you might you might as well spend the money um in, in a productive way the most productive way so to speak so so those were were the things that i wanted to get out
well, I maybe have one one more thing that one of you can can chew on, namely uh, related to information and and values. What I think is kind of unanswered in the book, maybe maybe this I don't know, but I I thought about it a lot in the, in the last couple of years. Is you obviously you're always you're always presented with new information. Like new information comes in in the physical world as well again because of limitation because you like if if you look out into the universe the the light that arrives at us it, it takes time for light to travel so always new information comes in uh, same is true like in life in in markets and so on and you need to be able to make meaning of the new information that comes in so you you need to have like a map of meaning to actually parse the information and make sense of it and transform it to something that might be of value to you or not. And what I think is insanely fascinating is um, that there is basically no difference between encryption and intelligence. And let me elaborate how I mean that. It's if information repeats, the density of information is not that high. You can like, if, if I tell you one, two, three, four, five, you can make up the rest of, <laughs> of the meaning in that statement uh, in your head. And so something has maximum information if it is perfectly compressed. And something that is perfectly compressed is basically random. You don't, you don't really understand what's going on unless you, you have the key, so to speak, how to, how to make sense of it. And I think this is in part what... Uh, uh, and, and now, now, it, now it gets wild. <laughs> I think this is in part what happens uh, to people that have religious experiences or also psychedelic trips, because suddenly what used to be random information in your regular mode of being becomes insanely meaningful. And But it is always there. You just lack the understanding to make sense of it, I think. And um, I think religious, like, um, religious stories talk about that as well. And uh, yeah, I, I I don't think maps of meaning went down that road in any meaningful way, um, except for for yeah, um, trying to define from a very Christian lens uh, what is what is of highest value, so to speak. Uh, but I would be interested in in all of your guys' thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Um, I could, what you just laid out there is interesting. There's this book I read called The Information by James Bleak. Uh, I also read a book called Chaos by the same author. And that was my takeaway in the book is that information is surprise, if you will. It's, um, if you have a, a rule <clears throat> or a heuristic or, or an established pattern, like you said, one, two, three, four, five, you know the rest of all Infinity set of numbers, uh, you can compress that a lot, right? And so you, we'd call this an algorithm, I guess, right? Uh, N plus one would be that algorithm. Um, and in the broadest scope of the universe, again, that's what we're contending with is the <clears throat> infinite randomness of the universe, but trying to figure out little rules that we can contend with it more easily. So we're trying to economize our relationship with entropy in a way. And when we, in learning these little rules, the, the, that's what innovation is, right? It's, it's a new way 
hey, here's how the universe works. We discovered a pattern. We can now leverage this pattern to you know, deliver water more cleanly or cheaply or, or get food more easily or whatever it is, whatever the human aim we're trying to economize for uh, is discovered in the discover is discovered in these rules basically of contending with the entropy of nature. And I like that point too that you mentioned uh, basically you're talking about the evenly rotating economy in, in my thesis terms where if there's no uncertainty, then you don't, then money doesn't exist actually, because you can actually structure all payments. You can actually lend out all your capital and structure the repayment dates such that it perfectly matches dates that it needs to go back out. So the, the need for a medium of exchange money goes away in, in a world of pure certainty. Um, and so that's, you know, points to another aspect of money, which is money as an insurance policy on entropy, basically on uncertainty. So as a tool we use to deal, a tool we use to mediate that edge, right? The edge we're talking about between order and chaos. We use speech, we use money. They're like, they're, they're very, it's not just a metaphor to call money the language of value. Money is a language. It's, a, it's an economic language. It's a energetic language. Um, and it, it and that uncertainty, again, arises from our limitation. Because if we were unlimited, if we were truly God, omnipotent, omniscient, all these things, we wouldn't need money, right? It doesn't exist. So there's, there's somehow that there's the relationship again. We've, we've got like God, word of God, which is free speech or money, and then uh, the individual, which is, which is limited. So the unlimited interfacing with the limited is occurring through language or money, which I think is, is super interesting. And it's that limitation that necessitates economization. Because if we were limitless, we wouldn't need to economize in interaction. Nothing would be scarce, right? Nothing would be scarce in the universe. There wouldn't be a market price for anything. We would just be, we wouldn't exist, frankly. We'd just be this cloud of, we'd be God at that point, I guess. Um, so that, that too, that's your yin and yang again, right? Everywhere we look at the edge of our perception, we hit a paradox at some point. I think that's maybe the greatest paradox of them all is this relationship between the finite and the infinite. Um, and Bitcoin is really interesting there in that you know, we have the first purely finite money there's ever been, right? The only absolutely fixed supply or absolutely scarce money that's ever existed. So it, and through that lens, it sort of optimizes for our ability to relate to the infinity of of market variations, right? In terms of values and innovation and population. We have this, we have this strictly fixed finitude to deal with an infinitude of market variation. And that's very, very powerful and very important. And you know, points towards its uh, <clears throat> I guess you would say almost semi-divine kind of nature. It's like the most perfect language of value we've ever had. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, I, the other thing that comes to mind is I, I've written about this before, talking about the market generating truth in, forms of, in the form of price, tools, or innovation and virtue. And if it is zero in on virtue, that is a tool in a way, like it, it's letting us, it's the character trait that allows us to 
play across the broadest set of games, as Peterson would say. Peterson would say, like, it's not about winning any one game. It's about embodying the characteristics that others will invite you to play in other games. So you'll, you'll be invited, you'll be liked and appreciated enough, well enough to be invited to play other games based on this virtue that you exhibit while simultaneously exhibiting maximal competence to win across the broadest set of games. So it's not just about winning. And he always talks about the, the, <laughs> the mouse, right? Where the big mouse wrestles the little mouse the big mouse will let the little mouse win 30% of the time. If he doesn't, the little mouse stops playing. So there needs to be this kind of give and take uh, between, between organisms and organizations, I guess. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's, so it's like by engaging with the market or God courageously, honestly, and honestly is very important too, because if you try to lie or you make a mistake, you're basically, you're creating a divergence between that civilizational bubble and the, the entropic reality, right? There's a gap, there's a fork, if you will. And that fork inevitably gets reconciled at some point. So if you do things dishonestly, I think John, you said this before, you're creating a fork in reality effectively. And that fork breaks down at some point. Um, so if you, when you, that's why I think morality, there's something very fundamental about it. It's not just, Hey, we're all trying to get along. It's, it's also how we relate to reality. If we lie to one another, we're not just lying to each other, we're actually lying to the structure that reconciles us to reality. Um, so yeah, I, we got off on a tangent there, but I think that's, there's you know this deep relationship between God, market, and truth that we really have to be reverent of to be effective in the world. I think there's, uh... Yeah, there is a, a fundamental nature to, to the market, as you say, and and we've talked a bit about comparing the market to God, and I think um, it is certainly, well, whether that's whether God is a good metaphor or not, but it's certainly, I think, indistinguishable from civilization or, or human progress. It, it, is, it is the market and um, the free exchange of ideas in the most fundamental sense that, that Robert's talked and written about quite a lot, and that there are two, you know, ways, it, the two most, I think, important ways that we mediate in that market is through speech and money. We know we talked about those two things as being fundamental. Um, and they are sort of, both of them have in common that they're kind of information passing mechanisms or, or communication mechanisms or ways of essentially turning chaos into order. But the interesting thing is that, you know, I think we're all in agreement on that point, but I don't, and, and I think a lot of people would agree about speech being fundamental. I don't think many people outside of this sort of circle would agree with us about money. Um, you know, and I think, you know, John, you were talking a bit about how much, you know, if, if we're talking about this fundamental metaphor of the market, you can put money in there and, and talk about that as the way you know, you're rewarded or as a reflection of how well you've, you've played the game. And, and I think a lot of people might, um, you know, not take well to an analogy like that because it's so ingrained in our culture that, that money is, first of all, not, you know, at best unimportant or at worst, you know, something evil or, or something corrupted. And I think that speaks to how far 
off the track we've uh, you know, we've gone in the course of our civilization with with our money, um, you know, despite our best our best efforts, you know, the be- you know the best that we had, you know, the freest expression of money o- over the course of civilization has always been gold um, because of it, its physical properties. But um, you know, even even gold wasn't wasn't strong enough in its expression of, of, of this force to overcome the, the corruptibility um, of, of the human interaction with money and the way we've gone down this path with fiat currency. And I think that's where Bitcoin can come into this and say, you know, as, as, as Robert talks about this, uh, you know, it being purely, obviously it's, it's this pure fine, it's finite, you know, in a, in an infinite kind of world, but it's, um, you know, it's, and that gives us this ability to purely convey information. And so it does somehow converge upon this idea of the truth and the, the word or the light or, um, you know, the, the uncorruptible substance, I suppose, you know, as, as, as you've written about. Um, so I think there is, um, you know, a, a central place for Bitcoin in this whole discussion. Yeah, I think... <clears throat> It's unavoidable to 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 characterize Bitcoin as the redemptive hero here, in a way. But again, of, of that theme of this dynamic being nestled within, you know, on every scale, it's like it's almost like everyone and everything is both God and is judged by God, um, depending on the scale on which they're acting. And I agree, you know, money money has definitely been tainted, and I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. One it speaks to how corrupt it's become. You know, our, mon- our system of money right now is the tyrannical order that's descended upon the kingdom, right? It- it's-, it's the die and crooked and sick and-, and corrupted and evil king or his, you know, brother that came back and dethroned him. And, you know, that whole, the- the- these are in the stories everywhere. And it's definitely time for the heroes of that era to go out and to um, determine to find something beneficial to bring back in order to redeem the people of, of, of that kingdom. And, you know, I, that is what we are doing with Bitcoin. I mean, we are kind of like an army of heroes that have noticed that have gone out into the unknown, have rejected the existing uh, system and have said, surely there's something better. There needs to be something better. We think we found something better. Let's, you know, learn as much about it as we can integrate it and then try to bring it back. And, you know, always in these stories of the heroes coming back, the reason why courage is such a huge element of it is because they're always met with resistance, even though the kingdom is, is decaying and the people within it are, are suffering, they will resist the, the redemptive hero coming back with uh, the very thing that would alleviate them of their suffering because of the level of comfort and familiarity that they've established in the decaying kingdom and because of the level of uncertainty and un- unknown quality of the thing that's being brought back. I mean, that, that's the story and it, it, you know, it, it plays out everywhere. And the other point about um, how people feel about money and as Rob, I, I guess everyone's touched on this, but money is, is definitely a language, um, but it's a far more truthful language right? Like I could say any words right now to you guys and, you know, some may be true, some may not be true. So ephemeral, but, you know, money in a market is the language is 
indicative of behavior. It's, it's, it's revealing of what actual action took place. And that's far more truthful and far more relevant than speech. And, you know, that's why I think we all characterize money as a language and why it's so important that that language maintains the highest degree of fidelity, right? So that nobody is muffling your words when you're speaking to, you know, to, to use a, a comparison or an analogy, right? So that the, when we act through the money that we use, it's the most, the highest integrity expression of our will and the, associated with that action as possible. And if we can do that, then that means that language, you know, the the system that we construct in doing that is the most most truthful, you know, architecture, structure, system, method of interacting that we can establish. And if that's the case, then I think then it just all comes back on us about how we act. You know, we've gotten so there's been this surreptitious feeling that that our voice has been so muted or diluted or stolen away from us. In, in this current system of money that we almost feel like our actions don't matter. I think even if you would disagree, you know, a lot of people today might disagree with that, but I think that's the sense that this current monetary system gives you. And that among other things causes you to abdicate your responsibility for a great many things, not least of which is your own development, your own identification with that redemptive hero, because it's almost taken away the, the relevance of it. Because if you become, if, if, if how you act and behave and express is not what is, ends up being expressed in the market anyways, well, why would you care? Like, it, it, there's no point. But if that were changed with a better system of money, and I know we all think that's Bitcoin, then I think over time, people would get far, um, a greater sense that their actions do actually matter and that they are actually communicated to the market in an you know, in an undiluted way, you know, in the, in the highest fidelity way. And I think that would um, cause a, re a, re a reversal of that trend of people starting to, you know, associate more with the hero and realize that their actions do matter and realize that what they communicate to the market does indeed matter. And perhaps as a result of that, of the money being less tainted, people would start to develop a, a more positive conception of it rather as an instrument of greed, evil, destruction, you know, whatever. I think they'd come to appreciate that it's simply the way that each individual expresses their, their will into the market. And then what you get as a result of that, I feel like you take more responsibility for that. So I totally agree that, you know, money is, is kind of a, is a bad word these days, but uh, I'm, you know, I suspect I, that Bitcoin, Bitcoin's emergence will begin to turn that around. Yeah, I, I think Peterson uh, even has a quote in the book where he says that every explorer is uh, necessarily also a revolutionary and every successful revolutionary is a peacemaker. And I think, I think this is, uh, yeah, everything you you um, just said about Bitcoiners, like if Bitcoin is successful, um, I hope we will see that that this is true. And I think I think it's it's very it's very interesting that we see this over and over again 
in the Bitcoin world that once you um, take that risk and explore the unknown territory that is that is Bitcoin, and once you discover the truth that we think that Bitcoin represents, uh, it's very hard to go back from that. And for most people, this risk, at least over over the longer run, tends to pay off. And I think this is this is a side effect that also can't be um, understated. I think, uh, uh, like, uh, Peterson obviously wrote a book where a phenomenon like Bitcoin didn't exist. So he basically tells everyone, if you know in your heart what you need to be doing, just, it doesn't matter what kind of, like, don't be stupid about it, but follow this inner voice and do what you think is right. And basically the universe put your trust into the hands of God and the universe will reward you for it. And I think this is definitely true. And you see that over and over and over again. But of course, you know, like uh, uh, something like that suffers inherently from survivor bias. But I think it is especially true in the Bitcoin world because it's just an exponential increasing asset that isn't done with worldwide adoption by a long shot. And uh, yeah, I just, I just want to pass that on that, that wisdom that Peterson also has in the book so if, if a Bitcoiner or <laughs> if someone is listening to that that <laughs> needs a, a final push to to follow his or her heart to um, do what what you think is meaningful then by all means go for it Bitcoin is one of the best tools that enables something like that I just wanted to get that out there into the ether yeah there, there's so many parallels to this stuff but as you were saying you know like if in terms of bitcoin kind of supporting you and making that leap a huge thesis of the book and a huge component of the hero's journey or embodying the hero's mode of being is in um is in doing that is in doing what you believe is is the highest use of of your being is most in line with what you think is both meaningful and enjoyable uh, and constructive to both you and, and the broader world. And should you do that, and in this case, I'm referring to God as that structure of reality that doles out rewards for the proper way, for the proper mode of engaging it, then God will open up the way for you right? God will, the road will, you know, appear and God will reward you for that mode of being. And again, I know this, this sounds weird to some, but as you said, it can't really be avoided that in Bitcoin's case, I'm sure largely because what it represents, and I'm sure it represents a lot that even we, uh, as much as we think about this thing, probably aren't yet, you know, aware of. um, It has that quality, perhaps because it's a monetary instrument and, you know, perhaps other reasons as well, but it, it has that way of o- opening the way for you, should you engage in it, you know, because of um, the process that's unfolding with it. And, and not just that it's an appreciating monetary asset, but I think the community also adds to that as well, both in, in, in terms of support and guidance and, and help and things like that. And it's, it's a really, I think it's a great analogy and it's a, it's a really awesome phenomenon to witness. Yeah, I think to try and distill it down a bit and root it in some conventionalism, everyone knows action speaks louder than words. And 
we keep talking about money as a language of value. Well, price signals are born of action. It's not just someone, you know, it's the Talebian thing. Don't tell me what you think. Just show me what's in your portfolio. Like, that's how you express your actual views in the sphere of human action. Now, I'm not trying to detract from speech. Like, I think what we're doing today is important to spark curiosity or help people, you know, explore the intellectual side of things. But it's a, in terms of how it actually influences the world, I think it's <clears throat> a lesser component than the price signal and where people are actually allocating their work, right? Where are you actually, where are you placing your chips, placing your efforts, placing the fruits of your labor? Um, and, you know, today, the other way to, to think about this is we, in the money today, there's never really any final settlement. We're never actually spending money with finality. Like we may think when we send a wire that that thing is final and whatever, but we're not exchanging physical gold, right? Unless you're, trans unless you're transacting Bitcoin or physical gold, there's this gap between trade and settlement. And the real settlement with, in the case of gold is occurring at the geopolitical level. Like central banks are, are settling with one another in gold. But then they're all keeping uh, this system of intra-bank liabilities that we call fiat or special drawing rights or whatever it is among one another as well. And we're just kind of forced to use that system that they're, they're constantly, so the point there is that this gap, and this is true in the financial system as well, between trade, which we could say is the intention, like I've, I've executed a trade, so I intend to settle this particular uh, exchange with you and settlement where the actual exchange occurs, this gap is where all corruption grows. Um, if you, and this is again in a number of ways, but if you look at uh, actually trading stocks in the US, the DTCC holds all those stock certificates. You'd never actually own it. So there are a lot of games played with the, between the custodian and the prime brokers of these certificates that you don't get to be involved in, right? They're doing naked short selling, they're, they're rehypothecating, they're doing all these false activities, all, all this fraud essentially is being perpetrated in that gap between trade and settlement. And that is, that's what Bitcoin fixes. I think is that Bitcoin actually unifies trade and settlement and therefore it squeezes out the attack surface for corruption or the opportunity for corruption and therefore, it's tightening the feedback loops between price signals and the market. So we're, we're, we're getting just more fidelity or clarity of signal and, and a, a cleansing of corruption. There's just not much attack surface left when you can trade and settle with finality anywhere in the world um, versus the, the existing system, which was just, which is funny. It's like, it's all, had gold been more portable Right, had gold somehow, had, had we been able to transmit gold, dust or whatever it was over a telecommunications network, we might not need Bitcoin. That's kind of the point. So it's like these socioeconomic systems that have grown so corrupt, have they're exploiting a technological shortcoming of gold, um, which is just really interesting to think about. But uh, yeah, I think it just, it's all about tightening these feedback loops between human action and the systems that humans create to coordinate their action. And that's what Bitcoin is basically perfecting. 
Guys, I'm going to jump in here for a sec. Uh, I know some of you said that you have to go uh, pretty much around now. Uh, there's a still a few things that I'd love to bring up if anyone's going to hang around. But of course, if you all have to go, then we can just uh, shut it down. So you guys can let me know what your what your movements are. I can't stay. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm good for about another 20 minutes. All right. Mute myself. Yeah, the, the what you just, you know, when you were saying that, Rob, you know, if gold could have been uh, transmitted over a communications channel, it made me think first of, you know, imagine a base metal. Um, and then that thing made me think of not just the way it was used in the Bitcoin space, that, that terminology or that, that phrase, but also in the, you know, this book delves into alchemy a little bit. And I'm by no means um, familiar with uh, that history or that domain of, of knowledge or experience. Um, I will say it's interesting that they too had that term, the coincidentia positorum that we were kind of using earlier to say like, it's the, the op, it's the, yeah, it, it's those two opposing, like, diametrically opposed forces that actually give birth to consciousness or experience or uh, any number of things. I mean, that, that's the relationship that births the, the thing that's actually unique, but um the, the idea of alchemy and the, the reason why this sprung to mind is because most of us think of alchemy as, you know, a bunch of guys trying to make gold, right? And as it turns out, it, it, that wasn't the case really at all. It was a far deeper investigation of, of reality. And that sort of investigation is impossible to do exclusively in the domain of matter. I mean, you have to be a component in that exploration because your ascription of meaning to things and your perception of things is fundamental in, in how you end up categorizing them, identifying them, you know, uh, putting them in some category of meaning, let's say. And uh, you know, I've talked about this subject a lot, but I think it's relevant here because in, in the book, you know, Peterson talks a lot about how he used the term like motivational valence, you know, of, of everything in our environment, how that gets constructed. And as a result of that, how we use those motivational valences, the effect that things in our environment have on us to help us construct meaning. And then it kind of gets into a, a hierarchical battle or categorization of meaning in our environment. And this is kind of how we get to, you know, an ideal of meaning that sits at the top of that hierarchy and then gets built all the way down. Um, but then he also talks about the, as I was saying earlier, he breaks into like how, if you don't identify with the hero, how you become the destroyer, right? And how kind of insidious that process can be, but how almost inevitable it is. And one of the things he talks about is also the, the, it's necessary for the hero. It's necessary for hope to be one of the primary motivational valences of, of to have the, one of the strongest motivational valences of the hero, because otherwise, why would you go into the unknown, right? So you, you have to believe that there's something of greater value out there in the unknown 
that can be useful in the construction of a desired end that you are trying to move yourself toward. Um, and then if we accept that as being the case, you know, I was thinking about this recently that what does the influence, let's say hope is a spectrum, right? Like I hope I get to eat pizza tonight for dinner versus I hope there's a Bitcoin renaissance and the end of wars and, you know, fill in the blank, whatever your thing is. So obviously hope is on a spectrum. And being that that's the case, the valence of your perception or your conception of what that, you know, what that desired future is, is going to, is going to affect you differently based on where it lands on that spectrum. And I'm, of course, I'm looking at this through the lens of Bitcoin. And, you know, we often talk about in this space, like that idea of a Bitcoin renaissance and how much of a departure it would be, you know, from where we are today and how many of the things, you know, let's say the detritus of the decaying, you know, current kingdom would be left behind and what we, we would be able to build and construct in that desired future. And I'm getting to a point here, but the, uh, the reason why I find that relevant is not just because we all have this thing that we're really working towards, but because the greater the motivational valence of the desired future, the more potential usefulness of your current reality is. So the, the more potential meaning in the form of, let's say, information is contained within your now because you recognize that because you're, you're so motivated to pull yourself toward that desired future. And so what I think is so amazing about that is that is, the, that is how your, your world comes to light. That's what, that's what makes your world shine. That's what, you know, that's, yeah, that, that's, what, that was, that's what brings meaning to everything because when, when the, the, the hopeful future is so, vast and broad and and containing of so much potential nearly everything in in your current environment you get the sense that it has potentially useful information for expediating your journey from here to there and i think this is really especially in our day and age with where there's so much despair and there's so much frustration and there's so much nihilism and that kind of stuff seeing the process unfold, and I, I, I'm referring to the Bitcoin community, of, of everyone knowing that there, there's this thing off in the future that we want to bring ourselves to. And then what reading the book really did for me is allow me to see and think about how that materially and dramatically influences your present. It enriches the current environment because it imbues everything in your environment with greater meaning because it might be useful to, to you toward going to that desired end. And that's a phenomenal way to pull yourself out of despair and out of nihilism and out of nothing means anything and what's the point of anything to almost the opposite where everything here might be useful and I'm, I'm motivated to determine its usefulness because I want to pull myself to that desired future. And that causes us not only to, I think, have a greater experience of life as a part of that journey, but it also starts to separate, you know, the things that we don't like won't be extant in that ideal future 
um, or aren't shining as brightly. And I think this is part of the reason why a lot of people in the space note just a greater clarity about life in general as a result of being in this space, because I think, let's say the, lumines the, the luminescence of the potentially useful and meaningful things gets brighter and those that aren't, you know, get grayer or get left behind or get separated from that. And, uh, you know, a, a more clear and vibrant world opens up as a playground for the extraction of meaning and useful information toward going to a highly motivated desired future or a desired future that is highly motivating. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing like such personal changes uh, in people that interact in this space. Bit, bit, bit long on that one. I, ho I hope some of that came across. I think we, we all sort of had a brief discussion um, before the, this podcast about Bitcoin and the symbol of the tree, like the, the cosmic tree. And, um, you know, th th that's a symbol in, um, in, in a lot of um, religions, a lot of mythologies about, you know, and, and the tree is a symbol of striving upwards, striving towards heaven or, or an, an image of, of perfection. And I think that, um, you know, <clears throat> as you say, John, like it's, yeah, it's interesting the way, how you construct that, that ideal image in your mind of the perfect future. And Peterson talks about how that's an important part of, of goal-directed behavior is, is you imagine a future state and then orient your behavior towards that state. But the, the, the quality of the, of, of the imagined future is, um, you know, is what dictate, it's not just how well you, you progress, it's what, yeah, it's how you've set that, that end goal. Um, and so I think, um, you know, from, from, and I guess everyone who's involved in Bitcoin may have different specifics as, as to that, but I think it's, um, you know, it all does revolve around this idea of, of freedom and individuality. And if you think about the cypherpunks uh, philosophy and movement out of which Bitcoin was born, they talked about this world where, where violence became irrelevant, where by stripping away the physical elements of um, of our world that um, that allow people to use aggression or violence as a mode of getting by in the world. If we can strip that away um, through through an interaction in cyberspace based on this this kind of new money, you know that would that would provide you know the highest fidelity that the, the the way that humans could interact, you know, on, on this higher plane. Um, so I think, um, you know, regardless of the specific details of that perfect imagined future, you know, it, it's based on these principles that are shared, uh, that, are sh that are when you break down religion and, and, and the Christian ethos, um, the same things shine through. Uh, I can jump in right here. This is um, sort of what John said, and then uh, something I got actually directly out of Mount's meaning is that the the other way that we, we talked about earlier how meaning exists on this knife edge between order and chaos. Uh, but another point that Peterson makes, another way to think about it, is he says that 
meaning exists in the distance between good and evil, actually. So that you could think of the, the further these things are apart, uh, the more polarity or tension there is. So I think that's kind of pointing to what John was saying earlier, how, you know, you set your aim on an, uh, the highest good possible, which is uh, another thing Carl Jung suggested. He, said, he actually suggested as an alternative to um, clinical psychology, you could instead try setting a really high moral aim to overcome anxiety, fear, guilt, anger, whatever it may be. And in, in that, that goal setting, you set your uh, aim on the highest good, you know, away from evil, it gives you, that, that tension energizes you in a way, and it really highlights what in your current life is relevant towards the achievement of that aim. So it, it you know, encourages you to clean up your room, as Peterson might say. So just get yourself in order, like eliminate anything that's not relevant towards the achievement of that goal. And the more, the more distant, again, like we're back into delayed gratification and the more good that goal is in terms of uh, providing goodness and service to others, uh, the more it encourages you and, and energizes you to, to clean up your life and your room and, and really just prioritize yourself towards achievement of that goal. And so it's that way that the that belief, what, and he makes this argument in the book that belief actually determines value. Like we know value is subjective, but another way of saying that is that whatever you believe is determining sort of what you value, where you set your sights. So we could say that to define kind of good and evil, I would say good is that which we are building that is a sustainable and useful, habitable order and structure for ourselves and others across time. Like we're actually building civilization, this little bubble of information we described earlier. And so it's selfless action, right? It tends to be selfless, um, tends to be in line with our, our, our deepest individuality and skill set. Whereas evil, we could say is, so, so it's a high expression of consciousness, whereas evil would be kind of the opposite. It's where you're, we're using our own self-consciousness, our own self-awareness to identify a vulnerability, like something that we wouldn't like done to us. And then willfully doing that to someone for the purpose of expanding their pain or suffering. Like you're just taking, it's, it's not, he, he distinguishes between tragedy and evil in the book where tragedy could be like an earthquake, right? Thousands of people die, but there's not a, a malicious intent. The earth was not trying to go and make people suffer. This is part of the, that entropy of nature we're contending. Whereas evil would actually be someone willfully intending to increase the pain of another purely for that purpose. So the good would be, you know, taking selfless action and building uh, civilizational structures that are, uh, that increase our productivity or increase our quality of life. Whereas evil would be more like these self-seeking behaviors that are actually destructive to that structure. Uh, and I think this, back to the yin and yang, it's like, what, okay, what's the purpose of evil? Then I actually, the way I reconcile it in my mind is that evil exists to test the integrity of the good, right? We're, we're building these things, these civilizational structures to safeguard ourselves from entropy. 
but we never know if we've you know built them on sand or built them on bedrock so to speak so evil is kind of like the storm uh against which the the productions of the good are tested and you know this is it's so interesting because we're back to that we're again we're deep in the realm of human action where it's not so much about materialist reality it's about the intentions of all of us and how they all commingle and, and intermix and uh another this is a, a popular alchemical dictum i think his name's pythagoras said that man is the measure of all things so it's it's our values that are actually measuring the goodness or evilness of everything the integrity of everything and um it's funny that that word actually is used in economics right we talk about economic goods which people tend to think goods and services there's goods which are physical things services which are a uh, service someone's providing for you but in truth all goods are services actually like we don't value material things we value the services the material thing renders to us i don't value the glass per se i value that it can contain the liquid that nourishes me in an easily grippable form that i can drink from conveniently or right, we don't value gold as a physical monetary substance we value the properties or services that it renders to us as money right as reliable scarcity divisibility durability etc so all you know all good is service and that to me points towards like this this moral kind of aim of life is creating goodness or goods for others servicing one another yeah i really like that interpretation and <clears throat> excuse me i'm inclined to uh to agree with it um rob before you shoot off the there was one question I wanted to have everyone's uh, input on. And I'm not sure if it's like a really silly question or a potentially useful question, but as a result of reading this book and I guess appreciating or understanding the root of where these mythological religious stories come from, does it nullify them in well, one, does it nullify them in any way that, you know, because when you can see through the veil of something, when you don't take it at face value, but when you can actually see where it comes from, does it lose the quality of being transcendent uh, or, or having the authority that it might have if you simply just believed in the story and then embodied the stories? And, you know, first of all, is the effect the same? But if we, if we kind of think like, I think I tried to characterize it earlier in this discussion where where are you when you can semantically articulate these sort of fundamental structures and and their purpose and and why we've come to erect them what does that mean and two does it even matter like a lot of people will say that they're not religious um and i am perfectly happy with accepting that that means that they don't adhere to a dogmatic religion but reading the book, having this conversation, thinking about this more, more deeply, you know, I guess for many years, ultimately, it's like, I, I think we always have a God. God is the thing that, you know, one that drives us forth and the other that judges us in the domain of action that we 
choose to engage in. It's, it's the way we determine, figure out, maneuver how to go forward in whatever domain of action we're in. So, you know, it doesn't have to be white bearded man, obviously, but it could just be the force or the structure or the dynamic or whatever that mediates between your effort and successful outcome and what that highest successful outcome might be. And I think that's revealed in all of our actions on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I think through their, through their actions and through their behavior, we shall know them, you know, like you can, you can probably easily tell what someone's quote unquote God is, what the highest motivator of their behavior is and, and how, what relationship they have with that by observing their behavior. But the question I wanted to pose to you guys was looking at, at actually, you know what I'll do if, if you guys don't mind, I was jotting down some very stream of consciousness notes before this started. And so this is going to be a real mess and not well articulated, but uh, you know, I, I was trying to, sort of frame it up as will is bitcoin starting to act as that kind of higher ideal around which people are orienting or are they treating it as god and so i'll, I'll read this uh, quickly but the, the note went something like this um is bitcoin the king to use this you know kingdom and re redemptive hero sort of uh, characterization we've been using or the messiah if we recognize the importance of what these stories speak to, but if in the modern era religions have been too tainted or despite our knowing the truth of the structure and meanings of the stories, we don't allow ourselves to adhere to any one story because we understand too well how they were impacted by culture or even because we are so multicultural now that one is not broad enough to, or, that no one is, no one is broad enough to, or legitimate enough to encapsulate uh, everyone or perhaps for some other reason. But the point is, will we look to another ordering principle or rather another place where these deep themes are explicitly represented, not in story, but in reality? Um, is, it is it possible that Bitcoin is such an explicit representation of the dynamic between order and chaos and the redemptive hero and not strictly a representation, but a living instantiation of it that acts out that dynamic and literally creates something useful from it and not just something, but the thing external quote in quotes thing that is most important in mediating or coordinating our experience in relation to others i.e money so it's an explicit instantiation of the ideal structuring of reality the output of which is actually the most important tool for allowing or assisting everyone else to do the same um, as a result of this would we not look to it more so than any other instantiation or representation of this fundamental structure of reality and how to navigate and mediate the forces therein so other stories or religions, um, I think it would, in the process of doing so, we would say, hey, what is it? What are the qualities that this thing does? Or, sorry, we would say, hey, what is this thing? What are the qualities that this thing does what it does with? What are the embodied, implied, and explicit principles that it exudes? Well, in the case of Bitcoin, perhaps fairness, same rules for everyone, truth, verifiability, openness, auditability, non-discriminatory, anyone can use, formidable, can't be stopped, mature, responsible, no second chances, responsibility, independent, no intermediaries, et cetera, et cetera. Also, what it is not would, would become apparent to us as well. So not affected by speech or opinion of other, et cetera. 
uh, not afraid or influenced by others, not susceptible to dishonesty. Would we not aspire to and or unavoidably be influenced by the qualities and attributes that we perceive to be fundamental to the construction of the thing which most contributes to the ordering of our at least interpersonal reality? Is this not the son of God on earth come to bring a redemptive gift and in doing so successfully come to represent an aspirational ideal inspiring the very behaviors in us that permit it to be what it is? Question mark. Sounds like a good blog post. <laughs> um, I, so I'll go first here. So I got a jet. Um, oh, there's some really good stuff in there, by the way. I, one, one way to think about this, maybe another angle is that the civilization we're creating, it, it's all of these layers of intersubjective realities, right? So we're always using different symbols and stories to reconcile each of our own truths or the truth of each of our own experiences. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, money is typically kind of one of the, the, the highest reconciling agents or the, the, the most important intersubjective fabrics of humanity it really is the intersubjective fabric of humanity. Um, and I think the one that, you know, back to all goods being services, goods become valued based on their reputation for rendering those services over time. So gold has the best reputation as money to date. Uh, you know, something like fiat currency repeatedly violates its reputation. Um, and, you know, there's various machinations have been used to kind of uh, I guess, augment the, the failed reputation of something like the dollar. Um, you know, they're actually trying to force people to use it because it can't depend on its reputation as much. So that's one way uh, to think, but then the Bitcoin just is this, you know, every, everything you just described where it's, you know, it's formidable, it can't be stopped. It's uh, encourages hyper responsibility. Like all of these things um, give it this almost, you know, it's immutability and properties give it this immutable reputation over time. So it's just built, building itself kind of in a, in a Lindy sort of fashion. Um, but to get to is Bitcoin, you know, we talked about the market, this connection between the market and God, and I'll try to tie that into Bitcoin a bit. Um, First, we need to know that, that value itself or values, let's say not, not value, abstract values, your own personal values. These are, they're prerequisite to all action. So the joke I like to make here, and I put it in Bitcoin and hope is like, why did the chicken cross the road? The old joke, he crossed the road because he found the other side to be more valuable. Like you can't even move in life unless you determine position A that you're in is less valuable than position B. That determination is prerequisite to all action. So every action you take, you're trying to move towards something that you find to be more valuable, right? That it could, be, it could be nested in something small. I'm walking to the kitchen to make breakfast. I'm making breakfast to have fuel before I go to school to study uh, medical biochemistry or whatever it is. I'm studying medical biochemistry because I want to be a doctor. I want to be a doctor because my dad told me to, or I want to make money. Like it's all these nested goals uh, and your values 
system is what connects you to move move through the, those those um, those layers. And another, this is another Peterson definition of God. Actually, is just whatever your highest value is. We all have this uh, rank ordered system of values that we're constantly shuffling, and you know whatever's on top it tends to be our priority. Whatever you put as your highest belief or highest value in that rank ordering is God to you. It doesn't need to be a guy in the sky. It doesn't need to be a moral code. It could be an idol, right? You could be obsessed with Pokemon cards, like right? just insanely obsessed. That could be your God. It does, that, it's just whatever the highest value in your hierarchy of values is can said to be a God for you in that it governs your action across time. It's what's the chief determinant of your actions across space and time. And, you know, historically, I think in that process of, of determining goal orientations, mankind collectively has attempted to create structures that, uh, that exist across time. You'd say they have the longest lived sovereignty. And maybe this is our, us building a testament to God in a way, like even if we don't necessarily understand it, um, or, or just trying to build the most sustainable models for human and socioeconomic organization over time. And historically, you know, our best attempt at that was the nation state, effectively. It is the longest lived sovereign entity uh, in the world up until this point. And something to prove that point, like, uh, so John D. Rockefeller that became just crazily rich. Um, he was the richest man in the world per capita, I think ever, or close to it. Him and his son set out and started buying lands uh, in the United States and converting them into national parks. And the reason they did that, they, they bought the, this property, protected it, and then vested that interest with what was at the time the longest, which still is actually, the longest lived sovereign entity up until that point. So they were trying to maximize the expression of their values, which they valued protecting this land for others to enjoy. They needed to vest that interest beyond their own life. They needed to vest it with some, the, the longest lived sovereign entity in the world, which at that time was the United States effectively. And so that, that became the national parks. And what I think Bitcoin is competing to become actually is the new longest lived self-sovereign entity in the history of the world. Something that can outlive nations, individual nation states. Something more like the Bible itself actually that can outlast empires, right? It's just distributed information that lives everywhere and nowhere and is sort of established by, by consensus. Um, and in that sense that, you know, Bitcoin, if, if God and the market are one and the same, or at least reflective of one another, we could consider Bitcoin to be the greatest testament yet, the greatest um, monument mankind has built to this deity, if we want to call it that, the free market, uh, the greatest expression of the free market, and therefore, to God in our, in our secular sense of the word that we've established here. Um, and could be that, that center point to all of our inner subjective realities going forward, right? It's the, the most objective centerpiece possible to the various inner subjective realities we create to, to civilize ourselves. Um, 
and it you know that's just what makes it so profoundly interesting and, and rob on that point where you're talking about the the, the longest lived sovereignty <clears throat> in the book uh peterson refers to the jesus character as let's say the most successful redemptive hero right that the, the one who embodied the mode of being of the hero most successfully and as a result of doing that having established the kingdom of god on earth and if 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 we're if we're judging success in terms of the term you just used as the longest lived sovereignty if that is in a in a in the domain in which we're speaking the highest ideal or the or the highest success of this ideal that we're trying to establish, if Bitcoin is the thing that does that, then the analogy to the most successful redemptive hero, hero, i.e. the Jesus character, is pretty apt, right? Because it's it's doing the same thing, albeit on, in a different domain of action or in, in a different way, you know? Which is, we'll have to just do part probably two through infinity to get into this, and <laughs> get into alchemy where they were trying to, that was the, the, the idea of the philosopher's stone was to incorporate the spirit of Jesus that he, that Christ represents, which is essentially the, the consciousness that embodies that highest moral aim possible, right? Christ met betrayal with compassion, you know, hatred with love. He just, there's no, he's the, the ultimate hero archetype basically, in terms of, of sacrifice and love and high moral aim. Um, and it, the, the, the idea of the Philosopher's Stone was to unify that moral principle with something in matter. We're trying to discover something scientifically or, or through experimentation in the natural world that infused those principles in, into something objective. And, you know, I've argued that Bitcoin kind of is that, right? The, the, chi the core messages of Christ were tell the truth, like even tell the truth to power and honor the sovereignty of the individual, right? He's always talking about the, the individual choice. It's like uh, Solzhenitsyn said that uh, the line between good and, good and evil runs down the heart, the center of the heart of every man. Like he's really making that point that it's, it's about the sovereignty of the individual and it's about truthful speech. And that's what Bitcoin is. It maximizes both of those things as we've established today. It is the most honest money that's ever existed. And it gives the individual the ability to be maximally sovereign over their own monetary life force, if you will. Um, and the, the other, this, I sent that video to you guys last night and I'll finish on this. With, uh, Terrence McKenna talking about alchemy for four hours. I just listened to like 30 minutes of it, but one of the other ways the philosopher's son was described is as the coincidentium, coincidentia positorum, which is something that behaves like both imagination and matter simultaneously. So it has the ability to cross categorical boundaries. It can be moved like everywhere and nowhere, and it can be redeemed for anything you want. Um, and it has this ability to cross the, these ontological boundaries without damaging either one, right? So I just couldn't help, and he kept uh, analogizing this to mercury, where it's like a liquid silver that it reflects everything around it. You can never see the mercury, it just reflects everything around it. I kept calling to mind 
money, right? Money is not anything. It just reflects the goods and services that it's redeemable for. And, and Bitcoin as just being this, you know, incorruptible money, which the Philosopher's Stone was, was intended to be, um, and something that can cross categorical boundaries in a way that, that, you know, leads to conversations like this for just hours on end trying to wrap our head around it. Um, so I, you know, the, the deeper I go into that rabbit hole, the more fascinating I find it to be. Um, and so, yeah, I hope, I hope we can do this regularly, by the way, because I don't think we've been touched one page in the book. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it, we've, I hope we've at least made a dent in it and, and said something that's partially coherent and, and digestible to people. But yeah, it's a, it's a big one to bite off. So I, I'd love to get together again and, and crack it back open. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. All right, Rob. We'll see you soon. Um, Richard, Gigi, uh, any uh, comments from the last little little bit? I still have a little bit, that, but I maybe Richard wants to go first um, uh, if he if he has something. Yeah, we we don't have to keep it going for much longer, but I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to share some of your thoughts that I'm sure you have. Well, maybe I just, yeah, in terms of trying to summarize or, or find a parting thought, uh, you know, John, you're asking the question of, you know, now that we're looking at these re religious stories or myths with the, with the eye of um, an, an analytical brain or a scientific brain, does that, does that undermine them? And, uh, you know, it's an interesting, and then can we somehow tie this back to, to Bitcoin? Um you know, I think it's a very interesting question and something I've been pondering. And I was thinking about this, it, you know, I was walking last night in the city and walked past a, a cathedral and looked up and, and thought, you know, the, the guys that built this, built it, you know, as a tribute to, to God. And they believed that that God was real in whatever sense of the word real, that they w would be able to define it. Um, and I think that, you know, now I don't think we're capable of building something like that. Um, even though we might say, oh, we're, we're smarter now because, you know, with our scientific principles, we can reject the idea of God. Um, but we've also, but in doing so, we've sort of lost our rudder. We, we, you know, you know, you think back to those people who, who believed in God and people who still do today devote their life uh, to that, to that. You know, is it to a principle or is it to a, a scientific thing that may or may not be real? Um, and and Peterson's very much influenced by, by the writings of Nietzsche, who says, you know, and you might have heard, everyone's heard him, his phrase, God is dead. And so, you know, trying to, to dig into that, he'll say that, uh, you know, it, he and Peterson come to the same conclusion. As our analytical skills have developed, we've kind of looked back at religion and decided that we don't need it and, and kind of sawn away the, the, the branch that we're sitting on or kind of destroyed our own foundations without really understanding what, what we're doing. But at, at least, and then Peterson finds the answer to that, to that in this process of, of, of the redemptive hero. And Nietzsche would say that, you know, go, with religion gone, you know, our moral compass is gone, our meaning is gone, and all that's really left is, is a kind of nihilism. Um, like it's just the meaninglessness of existence just kind of hits us in the face. And, and there's, 
at the moment there's not necessarily an escape from that but he saw it as a as a positive step and an inevitable step in the same way that a child might grow up like the departure from religion was actually a necessary step and it and the step towards that higher plane is is us somehow figuring out now on our own terms how we respond to that inevitable nihilism or that inevitable meaninglessness uh, so he actually did see it as a, as a positive and an inevitability that, that we would go through this process. And, you know, I do sometimes wonder about where Bitcoin fits into this. I think for me, it, it, it's playing a role in some respect of, of that muse or that ordering principle. Um, you know, and I think that, I think that it can play, it, it, it can potentially play this role like as a, as an anchor, um, because it embodies these embodies the process of taking order um, from chaos. You know, it, em it embodies fairness. It embodies pure information. You know, as Robert said, it can be like an anchor for all our intersubjective realities. So, all I can speak is for myself is that I think there's a role for Bitcoin, but I guess. Um, yet to be seen you know i guess everyone has to approach it in their own way but that's one one of the powerful aspects of bitcoin yeah and just just one point on that uh, Gigi, before i throw it over to you but you know i i agree with everything you said but in reading the book i'm left with the impression that it's not possible to do away with religion it's certainly possible to uh discard and do away with the dogmatic hierarchical bureaucratic religious institutions that we have but it's like god can never die and in in my opinion peterson laid out you know the structure of reality that gets communicated into these religious stories or these myths of various kinds and so now instead of me thinking like god is dead and i never really liked that terminology and i think an analysis of nietzsche's work might give a person a little bit of a broader perspective on that, not just take it at face value, like Nietzsche saying, like, there is no fucking God. But uh, now I, it's like the the structure of quote unquote God, and that's such a loaded word, but it's, it's difficult to like <clears throat> articulate another it another way, let's say reality or whatever, is now apparent in everything. And like, I always kind of took that approach, like I saw the majesty of existence or being in everything um you know and that was largely influenced by you know psychedelic experiences and stuff like that but um so like i see to your point like i'm i'm i don't i was gonna say i'm torn but like what i think i'm saying now is like all dogmatic religions ultimately i think like they're they are dead for me not to say that they can't be useful, not to say they can't lead to a, you know, a, a good and, and well-lived life for some people, but for the way in which we're attacking this from like maybe a hyper-rational perspective, um, those don't hold much merit to me. But the thing that gave rise to those, uh, which Peterson articulates and outlines in his book, that plays a lot with me, like, you know, that has a lot of merit with me and I see it as inescapable. And as a result, I see it in almost all things. Hence the kind of long-winded, you know, question I had about is Bitcoin just the most relevant 
instantiation of that same process, right? Does it have, is it, is it the, the instantiation that has the greatest motivational valence of that process for us now as modern people, because we've discarded, let's say, the lesser instantiations of the formalized religious doctrines that are still, both of which are still predicated on the same underlying dynamic of the structure of reality, but one is both more useful and both and, and more amenable to our rational, critical thinking mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, uh, I can only, like going last now, I can only echo what everyone else has already said. But I, I would also like to answer the question that you posed, John, um, which was if the understanding of all those um, yeah, various layers takes away, takes anything away from myth and religion and, and all those things. And um, an interviewer asked Richard Feynman, my favorite physicist, the same question about science. And I will give the same answer that Feynman gave, which he said that it only adds. He doesn't understand how any understanding like can sub subtract from the wonder and the beauty of, for example, a rainbow or or something like that, if you understand what's actually going on. And I think for me, it's the same. Like I, uh, I actually was uh, like, <laughs> it's still very hard for me to, to um, talk about it or label myself accurately because I, I have no idea how I would label myself except for I'm a Bitcoiner now. But I, I used to self-identify as an atheist and I was quite a militant atheist at that. And I, as we said in the beginning, uh, and uh, I think both Richard and Rob mentioned various authors. I, I read all of them. I read all of the new atheists and I was I was basically um, Knut Svalholm. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why I'm not interested in debating that with him because I think I know exactly where, he where he's coming from. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I I think it's, it's very interesting uh, or at least for me, it was very interesting. It's now... Uh, almost uh, two years ago where i realized that bitcoin will definitely become a religion and <laughs> that's that is also where i um, started to talk about it and i think the reason is exactly because i slowly realized that um, bitcoin to me was of the highest value it was the highest motivator of my behavior i changed my whole life and uh yeah i i made radical changes in my life because of bitcoin and once i met a bunch of other people that did exactly the same thing I kind of realized, okay, this is inevitable. If this thing, whatever it is, has this effect on people regularly, like consistently, and, and of course, you know, it's it might be 0.01% of people that come into contact with Bitcoin and dive down the rabbit hole and it, where the changes are that drastic that you can, like you, you even start to question yourself, what are you actually doing? You know, like leaving your old life behind for some magic internet money and... <laughs> <laughs> weird weird people online with random cartoon characters um but yeah so for, for me it's it it but it for me it kind of makes sense as well you know like i don't i don't see it as a dogmatic religion i personally value truth i value fairness i, I value voluntary interaction and i always wanted to work on something that is larger than me or large, larger than my generation larger than us like the cathedral idea you know like that's in part why the people worked on it they, they knew it was like you know it will take 200 years until this thing is done and 
I want to lay a brick at least. And so, yeah, definitely, I can only speak for myself, but Bitcoin is my cathedral. And, you know, I, I often like to joke, I, I do as the corn commands, you know, like whatever is necessary. And if it's, <laughs> if it's photoshopping laser eyes, then that's what I'll be doing. And <laughs> if it's writing code, then that's what, what I'll be doing. So, um, yeah, if, and I, I understand that people see it as a cult and I, I understand that people see it as a, as a religion. The last couple of weeks, um, multiple people pointed it out. Um, even, <laughs> um, yeah, even Nassim Taleb mentioned that all the single-celled amoeba brains, all the Bitcoiners are, are part of a, a religion and, and not really uh, taking part of any anything, quote-unquote, meaningful in, in, uh, in his um, yeah, judgment, at least. And I, I think, I, I mean, John, you obviously, uh, in, in the whole Bitcoin space, I think you dove down this particular um, facet of Bitcoin the hardest, the, how, how it changes the individual. Um, but I, I think you asked the question like half an hour ago, if, if we think that Bitcoin kind of influences and orients us. And I think that's definitely true. And I, I wrote, I tried to write about it in Bitcoin's Gravity, how Bitcoin embodies these kind of ideals and has this soul and principles embodied in it, just the way it operates. Like the only way to interact in the Bitcoin network is by purely voluntary interaction. You, you cannot be forced to do anything. Like it's it's purely 100% voluntary. And so if you value that, if you, if you like the political idea of that, so to speak, then you're very well aligned with Bitcoin and, and you, you're prone to become a Bitcoiner quite early. And uh, I think the closer you get to it, the more you have to align your values with with the values that are embodied in the system. And I think that's that's what we see um, playing out in real time, so to speak. And I think it's a fascinating phenomenon. And I think it also, the, the ripple effects of that, they are impossible to predict. Like we now see it on an individual level. And I think we also see it play out on, on like a small business, medium-sized business level. I mean, of course, you know, businesses are just collections of individuals, but I think, the the power that Bitcoin has to transform this like to transform societies by transforming the individuals that make up these societies cannot be overstated. I, I think I think we will see um yeah I think a lot of people will scratch their heads <laughs> what what is happening here and I, I think it's not necessarily easy to understand. And uh, also in in line with what Rob said, the alchemical idea of how Bitcoin, like how, how the incorruptible substance and how um, the philosopher's stone can bridge these conceptual gaps. I think therein lies the power of Bitcoin. And this is also something that makes it godlike that it is pure information, but it's still rooted in physical reality. And understanding that is really hard, I think. Like it's 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 actually really hard to to grasp that and to understand proof of work in a very deep way and what it actually does and how it manages to embed something physical in information directly, which is the reason why you why you can have Bitcoin in your head, like why why you can store value in pure information. And it it is this, uh, as Richard mentioned as well, like this this tree that that uh, bridges the gap between heaven and hell in the 
in, in the Jungian sense that, uh, you know, like something that a tree that reaches the heavens needs to have its roots reach down all the way to hell. And I think, you know, the, the way I, in my mind, make the, the bridge to, to Bitcoin there is it, is it is necessary that this thing is insanely power hungry, for example, which a lot of people uh, see as the hellish aspect of Bitcoin. I, I would guess uh, definitely currently environmentalists would see it that way um, to, to get all the positive effects of, of Bitcoin. And so th there are so many parallels with this way of thinking about things that Bitcoin represents that I, I, I will not be surprised that more and more people talk about Bitcoin as a living organism or as a religion or as uh, something more than just a technology and the money. Yeah, I, you know, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I guess kind of along similar lines to <clears throat> what I was saying about the way Peterson characterized religion. I mean, it's kind of unavoidable for me to see it that way, just because as you were saying about how many, how, you know, how relevant it is on so many different domains. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's an incredible thing to delve into. Um, and Richard, unless you got uh, something you want to add on what Gigi has said, uh, I'll uh, thank you both for your time. I know it's, we've been on here for almost three hours and I hope, I hope there's been some kind of benefit to uh, anyone listening to this, because like, I'll be honest, uh, you know, tackling this piece of work is somewhat daunting, you know, because it's dealing with really, you know, fundamental concepts and, uh, <laughs> very nice i'm seeing your background right now Gigi. it's for, for everyone listening it's jordan pearson imposed on uh the gladi uh russell crowe's character from the gladiator with bitcoin in one hand and a sword in the other and saying are you not entertained it's beautiful um but you know this is tough i hope it's been you know somewhat interesting and and you know informing for for people my high my best recommendation would be to read the book um, it's an incredible piece of work and I'm sure, you know, that you'll, you'll derive a lot of value from, uh, engaging in the insights and the ideas that Peterson so eloquently formulated, uh, gents really appreciate it. It's always fun to jam. <clears throat> Any last words, uh, Richard, Gigi, before we shut this thing down? Yep. My last words Probably. would be, um, to all the Bitcoiners out, out there. Um, take it one step at a time, but just be aware that if you adopt Bitcoin, Bitcoin also adopts you. So you will have to take on radical responsibility and extreme ownership, and you will have to lower your time preference. And just be aware that, as Robert has said as well, Bitcoin is basically like the Bible. It's pure information, but it's it's the Bible on steroids. It's, it's the Bible with self-replication, like with religious and economic self-replication built in. So um, it's a force to be reckoned with. And um, yeah, don't overdose on the orange pills. It's definitely possible. <laughs> I, I think that the way... Um... The way Peterson, John said, the way Peterson constructs his reality is like a game where you can't avoid playing. Like you have to play no matter what. And I think um, Bitcoin is the same way. Like whether you know it or not or like not, you're sort of playing the Bitcoin game. Um, so best, it's just as it's best to play the hero role um, and voluntarily embrace the unknown it's the the quicker you sort of join um or, or try and understand the game you're playing with bitcoin the better 
Um, but it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, John. Gigi, thank you. Um, this has really helped me work, work through some of the issues in this book that aren't easy. So I very much appreciate being a part of this. Well, like Rob said, we're, we're probably going to have to do this again because um, I clarified some things. I still have a lot of questions and things I'd love to bounce off you guys. So we'll have to save that for another time. But uh, until then, boys, be well. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. See ya. Oh.